Hi and welcome to Directors and Animation podcast. Today I'll be speaking to Eric Guaglione, a fantastic and very experienced director. Eric and I have worked at Rovio where he was the supervising director across many projects. Hi Eric, welcome to the podcast. Hey Augusta, it's great to see you again. Thank you so much for joining us. It's, it's really great to talk to you. Oh, it's an honor to be here. Thank you. Oh, great. Let's just dive in. And you've had or are having, you're having a career that is sort of spanning so many different continents and so many different studios. So I just wonder if you could share a little bit about your directing path or your career path. Absolutely. I've had kind of an interesting career path because it's not quite as uh, linear as you might find with some people's um, paths and their ambitions. Uh, so let me take you to through the, some of these, uh, the, the, the weaves and wanders, you know, through the career and maybe you can connect the dots and make right. some sense of it yourself. I'm still trying to make sense of it. So maybe <laughs> you can make sense of it. <laughs> but it, it actually all started, uh, with a, an interest in, in animation period. I was definitely one of those kids that would be sitting, uh, three inches away from the television set and Saturday mornings watching every Bugs Bunny cartoon ever made. And, uh, and I also was very lucky because uh, I didn't really know it at the time, but I grew up in a neighborhood with uh, a lot of Disney animators and retired Disney animators in, in Los Angeles. And uh, I was lucky enough to have um, one of my neighbors just down the street was, uh, was a retired Disney animator that I would go down and do some, some yard work for him. And, and uh, uh, you know, after doing uh, some hard work, he would sit me down on his porch and draw me pictures of Bambi and Mickey and things like that. And I was so inspired by that, so very inspired. And uh, I think it finally, you know, got to the realization like, wow, you can actually do this when you grow up. I was just a little <laughs> kid. So it just led me into yeah. this this continuous interest and quest in, in, in learning about animation. Um, at that time, there wasn't a whole lot um, uh, publicly available to read up about animation. There were very few books written about it and and uh, very there was no internet, so it was hard to learn about it. But uh, I just dove in. So by um, the fifth grade, I made my first animated film and uh, I got my class involved in it. They all did a little bit of work on it, drawing some things. So I guess you could say that was my first directing role. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I don't think the, the result was particularly brilliant, but it was a great experience and the class really enjoyed, you know, learning about it. Um, but uh, so as things went on, I went to the UCLA Film School and uh, and that also is like one of those unique times in life when you're in a film school that you get to write and direct your own projects. And, mm -hmm. and sometimes, again, you don't appreciate the, the fact that um, that may be the only time you actually end up directing projects in your career unless uh, you're so lucky to to find a path where you get that opportunity and actually get paid for it. Mm -hmm. But um, it was a really great experience in film school and UCLA film school in particular was was a great experience uh, uh, in, in, in developing, I would say, a base set of foundational skills in, in all sorts of filmmaking, not just uh, animation filmmaking, but all, all sorts of film, getting out there and shooting films. And um, but I got into um, the industry when 2D animation was at a bit of a low. There was uh, very little uh, interest and popularity in the in the form of animation. So I found myself with an internship at a visual effects studio, and um, it was uh, doing kind of practical visual effects with models and so on. And uh, I was pretty lucky because some of the projects we had worked on were were some pretty. Um, 
seminal projects really in, in that era of, of filmmaking. So I was on Indiana Jones and Gremlins and, you know, films like that. And the, and the fun part about that, of course, is that it was very tangible back then, working with models, working with film, you know, mm-hmm. actual film that you cut yeah. and splice and tape together. <laughs> so it, 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 I will never forget just sort of that process of having a tactile sense of filmmaking, uh, which is really missing kind of from our current day uh, mm-hmm. way of making movies. Um, but anyway, I was missing animation and I got into a fledgling CG uh, studio called Digital Productions, mm-hmm. and which was, I would say, now would be best known for making one of the first uh, feature visual effects uh, films called The Last Starfighter. Um, unfortunately, I didn't work on that project, but I did work on a number of other projects there. And I felt very lucky because uh, I was one of the first CG animators in the industry because it was so new, you know, at that time. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it was nice. It was nice to be able to bridge some of the creative skills that I had as a 2D animator with some of the technical aspects that we had learned in, in visual effects. And uh, so I, I really um, fell in love with the CG animation process as well. So anyway, to speed things up here, I led to it, that led to a path of doing visual effects work for uh, Star Trek mm-hmm. and uh, many of the series and one of the feature films. And uh, ultimately at feature animation at Disney, uh, where I was a supervisor on The Lone Stitch and Mulan, a number of other projects there. Um, it was there at Disney that I really learned uh, so much about story and, and really began to appreciate the importance of, of story and uh, everything revolving around that. I just soaked it up like a sponge mm-hmm. there. And, and uh, so I, 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 really, I really look back to those days at Disney as um, being, I would say, the era that allowed me to really not only appreciate the importance of story, but also the crafting of story. And um, I ended up um, from there for a brief period of time founding my own company that uh, was geared towards um, providing an art education for kids, giving them a foundation on creating their own their own works. And uh, it was really ultimately about uh, creative thinking skills, I would say, and, mm-hmm. and empowering them with the ability to think creatively and, and solve problems creatively. And, and in that, um, it, it was an interactive um, uh, art education. And in, do- in doing that, we had a lot of animation that would introduce concepts. And so we developed characters to kind of um, uh, set up ideas and so forth. And it was really, really fun. But in doing so, I think we ended up... Um, creating several hours. So I would say I directed several hours worth of content, you know, within, oh, wow. within that context. And so that was probably the first time that I really had done that much uh, story writing, development, directing, working with local crews, remote crews. It was, it was really a, um, a great time that we had and created a really nice product as a result of that. Um, but uh, long story short, I got back into visual effects and uh, in feature and feature animation in uh, Australia. Uh, but I really missed that story component, so I found myself working with you at uh, Rovio, um, and that was a really unique challenge for me because that was about uh, taking something that was a world-renowned intellectual property, which was Angry Birds, a game and trying to develop a story world, characters and story world, uh, that would sustain series animation and ultimately a feature film. And uh, so I was hired as the supervising director at the studio to carry out that quest. 
and uh, we directed um, together quite a number of films there. If I remember, it was something over 180 episodes, if I recall, it was a lot, altogether. Yeah, it was I a think lot. All of them, yeah, yeah, all yeah. the different series and different projects, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, now I'm at Framestore in Montreal. I'm an animation supervisor. And last year finished up uh, Mary Poppins Returns. I'm currently on um, book number one of Artemis Fowl. And so um, I did a little bit of work on uh, Deadpool 2 last year. So it was, uh, it was a great move to Framestore and I'm really enjoying myself. That's fantastic. Thank you mm -hmm. for sharing that. It's, it's quite amazing, all the different countries that you work and the different projects. And like you were saying, uh, you've worked on such a legendary films and kind of I, I can imagine all that knowledge that you gather throughout the career. You know, it's, it's really important to not only to work on different projects, but to work with different teams and in different positions. It, it all helps um, in, I'm, I'm guessing, your current work. Yeah, thank you. And it's, it is interesting because, as you can imagine, there's quite a different um, culture between making visual effects films versus doing feature animation films mm -hmm. versus doing series work. Um, they're done at different budgets, mm -hmm. within different time frames, with different size crews. And I think that is one of the advantages that I've had over the years, jumping back and forth between these different kinds of projects that... Um, you take the experiences and what you learn from one and apply it into the other mm -hmm. where, where applicable. I mean, they are different. There are differences, certainly, but there's also a lot of similarities and, and, and ways that you can apply the, the knowledge gain in one area and make making it more efficient in, in another area. Absolutely. At least at Rovio, you always had this idea of what a director is or what a group of directors is. And I remember you set up a Director's Brain Trust which was mm -hmm. a weekly kind of director's get-together. Yeah. And we got to watch each other's work and kind of share ideas and critique. And sometimes there, it was tensions or, you know, but most <laughs> of the time I think it was just a, a safe room where you were able to present your work and, and get feedback from your peers, which is quite rare to, to have that um not only that safe space, but to be able to talk to other directors and share that knowledge. So I was just wondering if you can uh, tell us how you set up the idea, how you came up with this idea, and anything else you could share about the Director's Brain Trust. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It was it was really fun, you know, to get together as, as directors and look at each other's work and comment on that. Um, it's not always possible, as you know, uh, to have a group of directors do that. Uh, but maybe I can talk about that a little bit at the end here and, and ways that you can, as a director, still put together your own director's brain trust to do mm. that. But in the, in the case of Rovio, where we had, I think the, at the peak time, we had something like 12 directors wow. uh, yes. that were working on various series. So we had a room full of 12 directors, all with 12 different opinions. Yeah. <laughs> And uh, sometimes, you know, people would gang up each other, but it wouldn't be too bad, right? No, 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 <laughs> no. no, no. no. <laughs> I, think, I think everyone had a sense of humor and <laughs> oh, came yeah, yeah. into the room with an open heart and an open yeah. mind. <laughs> I'm certainly being cheeky when I say that. I think, I think in, in general, we were all pretty kind towards one another. <laughs> I think so. I think so. Absolutely. So, but anyway, the idea, the idea came together um, as um, a safe haven, like you use the word safe yourself, like 
it, it is it is really difficult as a director because you're you're constantly trying to maintain a sense of vision mm-hmm. for what your project is and what what you're trying to accomplish with it and and you're trying to gain all this feedback and and make sense of that feedback and applying what you can um, but especially when it comes to a director having an opinion about another director's work, it sounds like it could be scary, like mm-hmm. that could be threatening. Yeah. So the idea of a director's brain trust is a, is a collective where you can all get together in the room with a very clear understanding of the rules. And the rules are that you are the director and you still are going to be the director. And everything that you hear in this room is feedback that you can take or leave. Mm-hmm. And you maintain 100% control over your own property. You're just there to kind of get great ideas. Now, the minute you set up that rule, it relaxes everyone because it's a no threat, it's a no threat environment. You know, all you can do is win from idea like people pitching their ideas and saying, hey, I think this could work better, or this would read better, or this would be funnier, you know, if you did this, making making suggestions of how something could work better. And um, it's also an opportunity for you to say, you know, I'm really struggle with trying to get this thing to read or to get this joke funny. Does anybody in this room have ideas how I can really make this punch? So it's the whole idea of it really is just to get the group together, get them relaxed enough and, and take the threat out of the, the room, take the fear out of the room that you're being challenged in a way that you lose control, but instead you actually like gain, you're, you're empowered actually mm-hmm. to kind of gain from the experience by having all these brilliant minds. So it's it's feedback that's constructive. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a safe environment, no fear of losing controls. The idea is really that, that you have trusted individuals and you also kind of get a sense right away then who in the room is, is there to really help. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's the byproduct of that, right? Yeah. Um, but it's a gift. I mean, you can you can take all the heat from the directors without any fear of losing control. Mm-hmm. That's really the main the main point of it. It's also, I think, really great for new directors, young directors, um, because they can hear all these comments and see how other directors' brains work and how, you know what they would do in order to solve a problem. Yeah. Uh, so it's fantastic for mentoring. Um, it, I think it's also really good for seasoned directors because um, it allows you to kind of sharpen your skills, your, per, your skills of persuasion, let's say, uh, to say that you, you have an idea of how something could be made better and you know how do you are uh, how do you articulate that idea so that uh, it really comes off as clearly and that you're as persuasive as possible, and and as you know, like as you develop as a director, um, your ability to sell your ideas, to be able to articulate your ideas, and to persuade people is is critical because ultimately, as a director, you're going to be persuading producers to give you money to do your project. Say if you don't have the benefit of of having a group of directors that you can do that, you still can create your own brain trust of having people that you trust that would give you honest, um, constructive feedback. It's not about the criticism, it's about the constructive criticism. So you can always create your own, you know, director's brain trust. And, you know, maybe that's your mom and your best friend or whatever. <laughs> but I think you you will know, like those people that you speak with, that you riff you riff with and talk about, movies that you saw and, and opinions that they have and you like kind of bantering back and forth. It's those people, you know, that you mm-hmm. would invite into your own personal brain trust and, and create a brain trust for yourself.
Yeah, people that you trust to tell you the truth rather than maybe just say, "Oh, it, it's great," and that's it. Yeah, yeah, you yeah, kind of need yeah. kind of a good feedback. Yeah. I think the the director's brain trust was great also to test ideas, but also as a director, you have to have a vision and you have to carry on that vision and you you'll get so many different opinions and ideas thrown at you and you have to be able to see through those ideas and say and see what actually works for the project mm -hmm. rather than just take everything or take nothing you know you can't be right. extreme in either way uh, and I think the director's trust really at least taught me how to kind of collect all these ideas from other people and filter them and understand what's it's just someone's opinion you know how they would have done it what is a constructive feedback that I can use practically what is something that's completely like you know they just threw it out without really <laughs> kind of even maybe thinking it was just like almost like a test you know how yeah. about if you make that blue instead of red and you go uh no because you know i thought about it and it has to be red or whatever um, yeah. yeah so i thought that was really good kind of continuing the theme of um kind of mentoring people and uh developing directors which you've done uh so much at rovio because like you said we we ended up with quite a big group one of the things you also put together was this document that you called mm -hmm. what makes a good director and uh it's it at least for me it was such a brilliant uh it's almost like a safety net you know if if, if I, i was struggling with something i could always refer to it so the document is quite big and we don't have unfortunately on this episode to go through the whole thing <laughs> but we are thinking of maybe doing something for season two uh, so i'd like to concentrate on just the two aspects of that so one of them is about giving feedback and mm -hmm. giving constructive feedback because it's kind of like an art form in itself <laughs> and the other thing is about listening to your crew clients and supervisors so if we can start with the giving feedback and if you can share with us just some of your tips from that document okay sure sure well first of all i'm glad that the document was so helpful for you um Uh, it's funny, before we caught up, um, uh, I had forgotten about this document. So you brought it to light that, oh, yeah, we did have that, didn't we? Yeah. So um, uh, I, I would I would look forward to a future time that we could go through this in, in more detail. That would be quite fun. Great. Um, so giving feedback. Yeah, it's, it's, um, it's, an, it's a really interesting thing, isn't it? You sense it as a director right away, whether someone is really open and hungry for feedback. They want to know how they can improve their work. Or um, the opposite end of the spectrum would be an artist who thinks that they've created something that's absolutely 100% perfect and they don't want any feedback mm -hmm. and, and everything in between, of course. And so part of becoming a good director is to read that situation. So there is no one simple way to do it. But anyway, let me get back to the document because that's what we uh, were talking about here. Let me, in fact, let me read just a little something from that document. It says, explain and justify your thinking. Not only will others appreciate the insight on why you're being asked to do something, they will respect you because they feel they're learning from your own experience. So that's, that's a very um, core statement, I would say. It's, it's something that I find time and again is really the key to getting people to respond well to feedback. Uh, it's, it's also... Um, As you know, when you're a director and, and you're, you're being rushed to give feedback 
to a large number of people. Everybody needs an answer. They need it right now. It's very easy to kind of get in this mode. This isn't right. Do this, 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 right? Uh, yeah. But but the but the reality is that if you if you do that and you say just do this, do this instead of what you did, then you're not going to necessarily get people to um, do co- good quality work because they're not really understanding the context of why is it that I'm being asked to do this thing. Mm-hmm. And so it's it's super super important to justify your thinking to say, you know. If we approach this this way, this will become clearer. This particular action will become clearer. Or this context of the two shots before that we set something up is really important to consider. And that's why we're doing it this way in your shot. Or this is, you know, if it's animation, for instance. Uh, or if it's color, like, oh, well, this, this color is symbolic for blah, 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 blah. And you have to, like, make sure that this reads this particular way and so forth. So, so as long as you're always giving... Uh, contexts and in, 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 in the in the greater bigger picture of what it is that you're trying to create, then people will get behind that vision. Yeah, you know, and then once they understand, they go, "Oh, okay, now, yeah, yeah, that'd be great. Okay, yeah, sure." So it's it's again part of the the art of persuasion to get people to get behind your vision. But the best way to do that is to explain what your vision is, even within the context of a uh, a, a small movement of animation within a, a single shot, you know, that even requires sometimes some yeah. justification. So I think that's, uh, that's a big, big one for me. But I also feel that um, uh, sometimes artists will be asked to do something and uh, they'll come back and say, well, here's my solution. This is what I did. And you go, well, that's, that's really wonderful. But I asked you to do this other thing, you know, because this is what we were after. Oh yeah. Yeah. But I, but I felt that this was better. All right. And it's like, okay. So if I ask you to make it red and you come back with blue, um, that's really nice. I appreciate that you're trying to think out of the box with a solution for it, but I still haven't seen it red. So stop and think for a moment as, as an artist on it. I'm, this is now not so much about being a director, but as a way to explain it to an artist is to say, like, you have to show me what it is that I've asked for before you show me the alternate and why you thought that alternate was better. Mm-hmm. So you want to you want to welcome and reward people for thinking out of the box and trying to make it better, but it has to be, again, in the context of saying, show me what I asked for and show me why your idea is better. Yeah. And I think that's really, really critical. Because then I think if, if the artist comes in with suggestions and, you know, what you asked for originally, you're actually more open to agree with the artist and go with something alternative because you know they tried they tried your way and you yeah. see it and sometimes yeah. you go well, you know what i get it i get it why you tried the other way and i agree with you the other way is better but you have to right. see that yeah right. I, I, absolutely right. and then as i said you also have to read the situation of the artist that you're working with you know that you have your favorites you know, and some person that really just always just does a fabulous job. And and you go to that artist and you say, you know, I'm thinking this thing, and I'm sure there's multiple ways to achieve that. Why don't you go out and explore that and see what you like, just, just milk this idea and see how you can get the absolute funniest, you know, result of such and such or the most clear, clever way to stage something or whatever and just go for it. So that's the other way of working, of course, with with like briefing an artist and and really getting somebody engaged in what mm-hmm. it is that you're trying to create. It's about building that trust. Yes, once it is. I think once the artist 
you know, they, they've shown that they're engaged with the project and they've listened and they're kind of on the same page, then it's such a rewarding experience to kind of be able to say that, to go, you know, this is what I'm trying to, to do, but I'd like to come up with a few ideas as well. And I think it's, it's exciting for the other person to do it as well. I can't tell you how, how often I've seen the expression of the artist looking back at me when I say, have fun with this. Just just go at it. I know you can do it. I know you're going to blow me away. Just do it. You know, and then you just see their eyes light up like, whoa. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you and just wait. Yes. Yeah. 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 Well, You've given them a challenge. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's, uh, you go into a creative job because you love it. Otherwise, mm-hmm. why do it? Because it's not, you know, they are tough days and sometimes the working hours are long and, and it can be exhausting. So if you don't have those those days where it's like a pure inspiration of spark or you are given this creative freedom to, to create something, then, you know, it, it just becomes um, like any other job, I guess, that isn't yeah. creative. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Absolutely. And so the other point in uh, in the document was about uh, uh, listening to uh, to the crew, which you've touched upon. But how about listening to clients and your superiors? Is there anything from that that you could share with us? Absolutely, I think it's it's um, it's a really different beast. And again, you have to always read the situation um, to say like, what is the interest of of if it's your crew. What's the interest of the crew? They they just want to work on something and they want to make it great, right? So they're they're in it with you. They're they're on the boat with you. Um, clients, uh, you would like to think that they're on the boat with you, but <laughs> sometimes it feels like why doesn't the client get it? <laughs> so you you also have to kind of jump into their shoes and mm. say what is it that they're trying to get out of this? Why is it that they're not satisfied with something? Um, what is it that you're you're trying to achieve that they're not seeing? You know, how do you either persuade them or listen to them? So it's 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 really all of the above, right? Mm-hmm. But but the 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 key is that um, as a director, you think you're being given that beautiful director's chair with your name printed on the back, and that you have total control over something. But the reality is that your client has hired you, you know, to do something, and you have to make sure that it is that you are achieving what it is that the client is asking you to do. So then, then you have to stop and say, okay, the client is telling me X, Y, Z, but is that, is that really like, is it, is it word for word X, Y, Z, or are they just giving you something that you have to then interpret mm-hmm. as meaning something else? And I think it's especially true with clients that you have to be very careful not to be too literal about the notes that you receive and the feedback. You have to really take into consideration the entire context of, uh, who they are, what they want out of it, and the note given. And then you can kind of go like, oh, I see what they're really after is this other thing, not what they're saying literally. So that can be very, very challenging, of course. And that, and that is the art of becoming a good director is to know how to read the clients. Um, mm-hmm. You'll also find in some cases that you have a client that is not one client, it's multiple clients or multiple voices coming from the client. Uh, like you might have you know, an agency who then also has their client, which is the actual company that's hired the agency, and there's multiple voices there. So it can get pretty complex. There's mm-hmm. a lot of layers, layers that are various interests and, and 
uh, what everyone's trying to get out of it. So it can get very challenging. I'm not saying it's a simple thing to do at all. Yeah. But uh, it's it's really important to take into consideration. It's not only your vision; it's the other people's vision as well. You know, and you have to take that into consideration. So the key really is just to collaborate. You mm-hmm. know, and making sure that that you're open to it. Uh, the once you become Close-minded and stubborn. If you use the word "but" a lot, but I did this because of "but I did that," yeah. then you realize you're just being defensive, right? <laughs> and so. yeah, and I think with clients, they have so many other worries sometimes and issues that mm-hmm. you don't even know. And like you said, the, yeah. to interpret the the feedback, sometimes you almost have to go. Um, you know, what it is that they're after, especially if it's like a commercial or if it's a big brand, you know, there's mm-hmm. probably tons of pressure from, you know, even higher ups or um, just the, the studios. So, yeah, it's, it's really important to kind of really listen to that. That was our case working together at, at Rovio, um, making Angry Birds content, you know, either if it was series then we had certain parameters. If it was something for a marketing group, it was a different set of parameters, different budgets, different constraints, different time frames. You know, so all of that weighs into it, and you have to really take that into consideration. Like, are you are you directing something that is, um, you know, relevant for their needs and at their at their price point and time frame? And um, also at Rovio, you. Um you were a development director across uh, many projects mm-hmm. and um, sometimes it's it's quite a tricky balance isn't it between having a vision and the schedule and kind of the studio's ambition so how do you deal with that how do you sort of juggle all these different things well i guess there's the there's the creative management of that and then there's the time management of that mm-hmm. right uh, so the creative management is is uh, making sure that you're you're frequently touching base. You don't lock yourself in a room and, and do your work, you know, isolated. Uh, you, you have to get out there and, and have constant communication uh, with the groups around you. And, and in our case, uh, working at Rovio was, was interesting because primarily it was a game company mm-hmm. and we were an animation unit within the game company. So I had to stay in touch with uh, the game units and the people that are developing the games and how our content was, you know, in, in alignment or misaligned, you know, with work that they were doing. Uh, we had other, other groups and, and toys and also books and, and so forth. So there was a big, much bigger picture view that we always had to be mindful of. And I think that's true. Like I'm currently working on Disney movies, as I mentioned. Mm-hmm. And yes, I'm, I'm at a visual effects company, but I know for a fact that there's a much bigger Disney machine that's thinking about all the other parameters of the films that we're working on. And uh, so when they come up with requests, you know, for trailers or whatever it is, then, you know, I, I understand. I just sort of understand that all of a sudden there might be what seems like an unreasonable demand, but it's necessary, you know, for what mm-hmm. it is that they do. So you have to just, uh, you know, accept that and, and work with it and, and, and work with them, you know, to, yeah. to make it successful. Um, and then the other side of that is the time management side of it is like how, how do you balance all that? Is it, it can be very challenging. Of course, a big part of that is just... Um, prioritizing those tasks part of it the priority is is um is the sense of urgency um so that you don't just become reactive to everything but you're actually anticipating when things mm-hmm. need to be delivered mm-hmm. um part of it is is i mean some of it is is huge long-ranging when you're planning a feature animated movie 
uh, it takes years to prepare for it, to finance it, and to actually get it into production before it comes out in the theaters. So it um, it really takes takes a lot of um, planning and foresight, you know, to get all those those uh, creative um, desires lined up, uh, so that they all support one another. Especially for features, it can take mm -hmm. years. Mm -hmm. And uh, it, it's very interesting what you say about the, the difference between time management and creative management because directing is kind of 50-50. It's 50% mm -hmm. creative and 50% is time but also crew management. Mm -hmm. When you first start, you kind of forget about that second part and you go, oh, it's all about creativity, it's all about ideas. <laughs> and actually, yes, it's a big part of it, but if you're not good at keeping track of your time or managing people, then yeah. the balance tips over and you have to kind of, you have to constantly be thinking of the two things and it can't just, you know, one doesn't exist without the other in, in the kind of animation industry, uh, at least. Maybe it's, it's, it's different if you're working on, on your own projects. Yeah, I think that's very true. And, and, and of course, uh, where you can find help in, in the time management side of it is with your producer. Mm -hmm. And and it's why it's so important to have um, uh, a very strong collaborative collaborative relationship with your producer, uh, so that they're they're looking after you as a director and protecting you as a director to do what it is that you need to do from a creative standpoint. Yet at the same time, that you have um, enough quality time to understand the context and set the priorities with your producer uh, about the management issues and budgetary issues. Mm -hmm. So it is a it is a constant dance, you know, back and forth between those two things. Uh, the producers um, are really, you know, a good producer is a godsend for a director because it allows them to do what they need to do uh, most effectively. Yes, and talking about the time time management, um, I remember they came at a point at uh, at Rovio where I think you were directing episodes, you were supervising episodes, and then you were mm -hmm. developing projects as well. So mm -hmm. it got really busy. And I just remember you had this, uh, I think it was in the mornings, you had an hour or a couple of hours where it was an open door policy. So the whole crew knew if, if they had any questions for you, that is the time to come in, which I thought was great. Um, so can you tell me about that, just about managing your time, but also you know, making sure that you have time for, for the crew. Right. <laughs> My first response is, did I really do that? Yeah. <laughs> I really, <laughs> that's great. Okay. That yeah. sounds really wonderful. Hmm, yeah. I wonder how I can still keep doing that. Um, no, it's, it's, it is really important, of course, to have open door policies so that, that people feel like they can always approach you. And, um, you, you will know very well, um, in those times of day where, being interrupted is is a real detriment to you getting your work done. And you also know those times in which you're multitasking, doing multiple things, that if somebody came up and asked you a question, it wouldn't be, you know, that uh, that distracting or it wouldn't interrupt your day so much. So part of it is is finding that point that point in within the day um, that's the least intrusive and saying that you have uh, open hours so that people can come approach you mm. and not feel like they're going to get their head bit off because you, you interrupted me at the wrong time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course. That's, that's kind of the least, uh, you know, 
<laughs> the thing that you want to do least, because you, especially if you come into your, your, your supervisor with a question, it might be something quite stressful, you know, it might be something yeah. that the, um, uh, you're worried about. So definitely you don't want that kind of response. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how it is in your workplace these days, but it also seems that that headphones is the international symbol of don't don't interrupt me. Yeah. <laughs> so sometimes I find myself during the day, I just put my headphones on. I'm not really listening to anything. Mm -hmm. I can hear everything that's going on in the room, but the headphones yeah. kind of say to people like, I need to focus right now. Yeah, yeah. You know. I think they should um, come up with headphones for directors that have a, a sign on the top that says something <laughs> like on, and that just means, you know, please don't interrupt me. And then it could have an off sign that, you know, like, yes, I'm free now. Please come in. I think, I think there's a market for that. Probably. I, I'll look into that. Maybe that's the, you know, the, the thing that'll make me a millionaire. <laughs> directors' headphones. But balancing balancing time, of course, is um, is critical, and I think it changes depending on where you are uh, within your production cycle. You know, when you're at a writing stage versus whether you're at a um, you know an art development stage, mm -hmm. or whether you're in full bore production, or if you're doing posts. I mean, it just changes your yeah. your day all the time. And it's one thing when you're on a feature film, like I'm currently working on on visual effects films that that will last a long time. Uh, those those cycles are very clear and they don't overlap with other projects. But when you're on a series and you're directing multiple episodes, then you'll find yourself in kind of a perpetual um, version of, of development and story and, and animation production. You're always doing it because you have, uh, you know, one, one episode with another, you know, overlapping mm -hmm. with another mm -hmm. episode and so forth. And so I think depending on the type of work that you're doing, you'll find uh, within those cycles, like different a different sense of availability to people or a different sense of balance of what your day is like. Uh, it really just changes as time goes on. Mm -hmm. And you just need to recognize that and, and, again, articulate that to people so that they're aware of, like, when you really need to be focused on something and not interrupted and other times when you're when you're open, you know, to, to uh, having discussion. Yeah. So um, as an animation supervisor, currently uh, I have... Um, very specific times in which we're reviewing, you know, work either in daily sessions in a, in a, in a screening room or uh, when I'm on the floor uh, doing rounds and, and working with the crew. So it's a more defined, you know, period of mm -hmm. time that mm -hmm. people expect every day. So as I as I come around in the afternoon, they know that they can really sit with me and, and, and ask me creative questions or they have technical problems they need resolving or, you know, anything like that. Yeah. So uh, it just depends. It's, it's very much context-based is what I'm getting mm -hmm. at. Yeah. And uh, I think this kind of structured days really help directors because you uh, come into a meeting prepared mentally. You know, you know that every Monday there's, I don't know, rushes or every Tuesday afternoon there's that. So these cycles, I think, they really help the, the kind of mental stability of director rather than every week is different and, and there's different meetings every time. Uh, so I think that's kind of, it's, it's really strange for a creative person putting these boundaries and putting the structures actually re is really beneficial. It is, it is, it is. And I think you as a director have to be very self-aware of, um, you know, what, what things come easy to you and what things are difficult to do and uh, prioritize things in a way 
that you know that by the end of the day you achieve what it is that you needed to achieve. Mm-hmm. Um, pri- for me, prioritizing is a big one because, my gosh, this is just an endless list. You know, I can't I can't go home any night uh, with my entire to do list achieved. That's just impossible. So I know that I'm going to always have to balance my day with the things that are of a higher priority. That's true. Yeah, I know that to do list never ends. I don't, it's, it's like a never-ending to-do list. Well, it'd be kind of boring if it did end, right? Yeah, well, I guess that, that means the project is done. and Then, you know, <laughs> okay. then I'd be making a, a vacation to-do list, right, yes. instead. Yeah, all the hobbies that you weren't able to do <laughs> suddenly. Because, oh, I can, I can do this. I can learn guitar. <laughs> all the random things. Um, so I think some of the people who might be listening are uh, perhaps directors that are just starting out. And um, it's very rarely where when we talk about kind of the insecurity mm-hmm. of directors. And I think no one is really immune to that. And it probably doesn't really go away no matter how many years you work uh, in, in the studio, how many projects. That's Sometimes that's always there. It's like a shadow that kind of follows uh, people around. So I was just wondering if you have any advice uh, of perhaps how to deal with insecurity or anything that you can share. Oh, absolutely. I think it's a really, it's a really great question because it's not, not something that's typically mentioned when you think about somebody stepping into the director's role. Um, everyone, everyone always dreams of stepping into the, well, not everyone, but I think a lot of people dream about stepping into the director's role. There is that director's chair with their name on it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Everybody has that vision. And now you get to call all the shots. Well, now that you get to call all the shots, um, there's a lot of shots to call. Oh my gosh, it's just an endless stream of decisions that you need to make. And, uh, and it can be daunting uh, at times. Like that you start to question yourself, am I making the right decision? Oh my gosh, I'm not prepared to make that decision yet. What do I do? So I think part of it is that, um, well, number one is that you need to make sure that you've developed a vision and it's one that you can um, explain and justify to others. Uh, it has to be like a guiding principle like, I know what it is I'm trying to achieve here. I'm not sure about this particular thing, but I know what my vision is. You have to have that vision. So I think that's really, really important. And it will help when those moments when you have a little insecurity of like, oh, I'm not sure what to do about it. Think about your guiding principle. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what is your vision here? What is it you're trying to achieve here? Yeah. And it can really, really help as uh, something to lean on. Um, the second thing, though, is that Make decisions, even if they're the wrong ones. Um, nobody likes a director that doesn't make directions. Uh, uh, excuse me. Well, that's the same thing. <laughs> nobody, li- nobody likes a director who doesn't like to direct. No, nobody likes a director who can't make decisions. Yeah. And uh, so it's really, it's perfectly okay to say, um, I don't know at this very moment in time, but I'm going to get back to you in X number of hours. Yeah. Yes. Um, but it's, it's, you can only say that if you really honor the statement mm-hmm. and say that uh, you are going to go back an X number of hours with a decision. Yeah. Because if you say, oh, I don't really know, I'll get back to you on that. And then days go by and you haven't gotten back to them on that. Then, then the person feels like, ah, that person doesn't know what they're doing. They're not, they're not directing. They're just like blowing off any decision that they have to make. They're not taking ownership of the, the decisions they need to need to make. So it's, it's really important to make those decisions 
And, um, and it's okay to admit, you know, later say, you know, I made this decision, but I've changed my mind and this is why I've changed my mind. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think the, um, your advice about, you know, if you're presented with something and you just don't know the answer straight away and just asking that time, I think that's probably one of the biggest lessons I learned from you and I learned it from you because when I first started, I just felt like, you know, I have to, I have to learn, know everything. And if I show any insecurity at any given point, that's it. Career is over. <laughs> you know, no one's going to want me to be a director. And I think it's, I mean, it's always a balance, isn't it? You don't want to be the, the person who is indecisive. But it's okay to know that you can't always have answers straight away. And sometimes mm-hmm. you just need to go for a walk and you go, oh, I got it. You know, I know, I know what I want this to be about. So I think that's that's really important. And if, yeah, it's it's one of the subjects that is so rarely discussed because yeah. I think the idea of a director is always like this strong leader that there's just like this. There's no insecurity. There's no kind of weakness. And you're like, well, that's some sort of like a, a superhero that doesn't actually exist because directors are humans and we have to we have to make decisions, but at the same time, you just need kind of like, almost like take a deep breath and go, I'll be back. I'll come back. <laughs> but do, do come yeah. back. Yeah. Yeah. Don't I don't think away. anybody, I don't think anybody would, would, would fault you for that. You know, to say, I need a little more information. I'll be right back. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think that's a great end to this, to this discussion. Um, I just, just want to say again thank you so much not just kind of being part of this uh podcast but just uh over the years kind of your support and encouragement when i first started directing was so important for me um so a big thank you again for that and thank you for sharing your your methods and kind of your career path with us it's it's always really great to hear these things Well, you're very welcome. Thank you so much, Eric. Thank you. Bye. Take care. Bye.